0: I believe life is one big spiritual creative experience, and everything that we do, whether it's start a business, write a book, fall in love, or I don't know, pull a bunch of tarot cards, has a little spiritual lesson wrapped up inside of it. I'm obsessed with trying to understand the mysteries of the world, from the arcane to the mundane, and unboxing as many spiritual lessons as I can. And on the 12th house, we're going to explore all of that. So let's get into it together.
1: Welcome. We're back. Maybe you guessed the artist case study that we want to give as someone who not only looks at a day job as something that is a means to an end, but rather looks at it as inspiring, as useful, as something that can enhance his work rather than take away from it. And that person is someone that Michelle and I both
0: love, George Saunders. I have a feeling that people were not expecting George Saunders.
1: I love him so much and I know you've read you've read many of his books and short stories. He's this is not the first time this individual has come up
0: on this very show. Love George. He really is prolific and he is weird. He's got some weird stuff. George Saunders.
1: There's an incredible graduation speech that he gave about kindness that is one of my favorites and have you seen that Michelle? Uh Uh-uh, no. I think you would really love it. Honestly, we could do a whole episode on that. I'll save that for the green room as well.
0: George Saunders, for anyone who is like furiously Googling, is an American novelist. I think his most famous work right now is maybe Lincoln and the Bardo, but he's written so much, so so many things (laughs) um, over, I don't know, the past three decades. He's the definition of prolific.
1: Exactly. And he's really known for his short stories and... Something that I learned because I love listening to him in interviews even more than reading his prose. That's sort of, he has this way of speaking. I I don't know if people listening have someone like that where I like listening to them talk about their work sometimes more than even consuming their work. And he's one of those people for me. So I learned that he was a geophysical engineer where he studied this you know in in colorado he went to school and he worked as an engineer in the oil fields and he traveled for that and and that job involved mapping the circumference of the earth to identify potential oil reserves and he's mentioned that this experience influenced his writing and provided him with insights into human behavior, into corporate culture. And I think, you know, that's one job that like is very different than being a writer. And even in that, he was able to pull from that and everything is copy, right? He was able to be inspired. And Mm -hmm. I started to do that when I was working full time where I would get ideas of seeing the dynamics. And if you walk through the world to your point in a previous episode, Michelle, looking at everything as research, as seeing patterns, as copy, then you can really be inspired no matter what you're doing. And then, you know, after he did that, he was a technical writer. And he returned from Indonesia where he was working as an engineer. And he moved to Rochester, New York. And he had this job that involved writing manuals and being a instructional writer, right? He was writing these instructions for materials. And while it may not have been creatively fulfilling, it allowed him to support himself and his family while continuing to write in his spare time. And he says that he would make himself a pot of coffee every night after he hung out with his wife and hung out with his kids after he got home. And he would go up to his little room and he would write. And something I, I also remember hearing him say about that is that. That technical writing, that very structured sort of writing mm-hmm. was a very good constraint that has, you know, worked into a rule that he can now break and it, it helped feed his his later writing.
0: Yeah. Technical writing is so like, it reminds me of Heming- the way Hemingway writes. Like you have to be so measured with your words and be precise and particular and direct. And it's such a good exercise, especially if you are like a sort of lugubrious Writer, flowery writer, to just ha- get to the point, man. And I don't know, it kind of reminds me of like if you're used to moving your body in a certain way in a repetitive fashion. Also, let's put a, a note in repetition, but you're used to like, let's say, walking a certain way or pulling a lever. It feels so good to move in any other way but that. I can just picture like the creativity sort of blossoming out of him because he doesn't have to write, you know, step one, step two, step two A, step two B. I uh, just, and like Lincoln and the Bardo is a really good example. That book uh, is, it is not an instruction manual. I'll tell you that right now. There's no, there's absolutely nothing linear about it. Like the way it is on the page, there's nothing linear about it. Um, you have to wonder if, if he hadn't spent so much time practicing that linear sort of way of thinking, if he would have had the freedom or the even idea to go nonlinear, you know?
1: Exactly. Completely. So he also worked as an environmental engineer and he's spoken about the influence of his engineering background on his writing. And he often discusses how his experience, you know, working in in that has shaped the way that he thinks about his characters and his stories, which are often darkly humorous. And he pulls from these experiences and having the science background contributes to the precision and the analytical nature of his writing and you know again while he might not have loved every ounce of these jobs he didn't think about it exclusively as a means to an end although it was the way that he supported himself and his family he acknowledges that it it contributed it added to his role and the development of his role as a writer and his unique perspective and his storytelling was really informed by these experiences. And his work often explores the themes of consumerism and corporate culture and the human condition as a whole, which you know he experienced to, to be able to know. And, and one thing I think about him is that he's known for – empathy in his characters. And he had to experience that, I think, to really mm-hmm. be able to write as empathetically as he does. And I have a quote that that he wrote about this time about imposter syndrome, where he says, you know, and this goes back to saying, you know, I'm not a real writer if I do this, but I loved this. And I'm just going to read it real quick because I think I think you might like it too. So he says, and this was on a podcast, but he says, it occurred to me a few years ago that that's what it is. It's not like you get to the end and you say, I finally did it. I'm a real writer. It's like you're a mountain climber. Your job is just to walk around the world, walking up mountains and come back down. At some point you go, yeah, this is what I do. And it feels a certain way when you're starting out, another way when you're almost done, and another way when you're finished and I'm waiting for the praise or blame. But that's the cycle itself. It actually is really fun and you can recognize that that's all there is. So I don't know. How does that land with you?
0: That to me is like that's the type of creator I want to be where I'm just like I'm making things because it's fun and it's like interesting to me and – not because I feel like I have to pay some sort of karmic debt, like I'm destined to be a writer, so I have to write this thing. like I don't want to be tortured by my creative process. It's already torturous enough to create something. I don't need to like make it more dramatic. I was also thinking about throughout all of these jobs that he has a family and he has children, and just the sort of like belief that in order to start a family, or at least that I had, I had to like be solid in my career and be esteemed and have a certain amount of money. And that's just not true. Like it's nice. It's nice if you can have those things, but it isn't the be all end all. And Lincoln and the Bardo is so, it's really like a love story about a family, you know, about a child and his father and grief. And he couldn't have written that if he didn't, I don't think, um, the same way if he didn't have children and if he had waited until he was successful or lauded or on the New York Times bestseller list to quote unquote settle down and take on the responsibilities you know, of of having a family, I don't think we would have the same work from him. To your point, our life experiences are what we draw from to create. And if you're not living a life that's worth talking about, then like What are you doing? Why are you waiting? Again, that starving artist archetype comes in and tells us it's never, it's not a good time. It's not a good time. We have to wait till things are perfect in order to move forward, in order to publish that thing or, um, I don't know, start that family or um, take that job. But like, it's never a perfect time. And it all just goes into the stew, it goes into the crock pot of like what makes up our life, what makes up our inspiration.
1: And I think, you know, what I love about that quote is that it's moving like it's it's about Mm -hmm. constantly being in process, you know, as opposed to finding a mountain and getting to the top of it. And there's a big celebration and they invite you for a feast and you're infinitely happy and never doubtful ever again. What he's saying is that that's not how it works. You just you publish something. And then you doubt it, and then you relax, and then you keep going, but there's no one to be like and seen. Like it's it's a constant mm-hmm. keeping going this. To the last point I want to make about Saunders is that all those jobs that I gave that he did previously to fund his writing, he's still to this day, being as prolific as he is, he still works what I would call A day job, which is that he teaches and he's a very known teacher at Syracuse. And in an interview with Saunders, he talks about this in a way that it's so generative to him. And he came to mind as the perfect example of something, Michelle, that you really conveyed to me about just that reframe of looking at your day job as a place to get paid to learn and looking at it as an opportunity. And this is what what Saunders says of teaching. He says, teaching writing helps my own work because it takes a lot of time and energy, which is an additional constraint. You don't have 18 hours a day to write. Maybe you have just two. And my work always suffers when I'm not doing it, meaning teaching, and I have too much open space. And he goes on to talk about this in this episode, which I believe was recorded during the pandemic where he wasn't teaching and he had so much space and it wasn't good for him. He noticed that he needed to have that constraint to be able to utilize his brain to f- to be able to break out of it. And, you know, similarly, Norma Kamali, the iconic designer, she said once that the more you do, the more you can do, and and that's just like something that we've heard people say, right? Like if you have a lot to do, give it to the busy person, and I, you know, or time mm-hmm. expands for the amount of time you have, the, the or the task expands for the amount of time you have. So part of it is that, and then something else I've heard him say that wasn't in this particular quote was just how much being around. The students being around the people that he is teaching, how much that feeds him and how much that helps him grow. And I'm sure you feel that way, Michelle, with working with the people that you work with and teaching and and even managing, I think too can be really creative. And what we were saying before about helping advise people or giving, you know, I learned so much. It's such a generative relationship for me anytime I'm collaborating in any way with anyone. Has that been your experience?
0: Totally. I mean, there are some, of course, there are some relationships or situations where it feels like, oh, it takes so much out of yeah. you because you're, it does, it's not like smooth going. And some classes are harder to teach than others. Like maybe the material is just more challenging or even it comes so naturally to me that, for example, when I'm teaching something that comes naturally to me, I really have to stop and think about how do I do this thing? Um, it comes up I think, like, probably more when I'm delegating, like, managing a team, teaching people, like, how to think around a problem or solve a problem. Um, less so when I'm, like, teaching things that I teach for holisticism, because they're, they're usually things that were really hard for me. And I find that people are much better teachers when they've, like, traversed <laughs> through something that they're not, not naturally really good at. They find all the little hacks and innovations to make it easier for the person who comes after them. But I, Really like teaching because it keeps me close to primary sources. Like it keeps me close to research as opposed to just like so easy when we're in our own day to day to be self referential and to kind of be in our own bubble of like, well, this is how I do things versus actually spending the time to see where your ideas maybe germinated from and how you've gone off that path. Like just reviewing even the basics is so helpful. I, I mean, I'm going on and on but I imagine teaching writing and teaching the core tenets of writing the way that Saunders does pulls him back into right like this is what matters like this is how you do this thing this is one of the ways to solve this problem and if we fine tune those sort of like very beginner or elementary skills our dexterity gets sharper like how can I I'm I'm not being very articulate but like in ballet uh, you do this thing called tondus, right Tondus at the bar and you do like I don't know, like 64. And you just like keep doing them. And they're like a stupid little move that's like boring and ugly, especially if you don't have very good feet. But this is it's like the building block of I don't know, 40% of, of ballet positions and um steps. And you know, if you just keep working that tondu, that little tiny reflex or action, you'll see it pay dividends in these like when you get to these more complicated um, pieces of choreography. And I think it's the same with, with anything, with writing, with creating, with storytelling, with painting, like you gotta, you gotta like fine tune those just the things that seem so beginner and basic that we don't often spend the time to practice them like etude style.
1: Absolutely. Developing the craft, sharpening.
0: Exactly. That's it. Just sharpening the craft.
1: Many great examples of people who Reframe the way that they look at work and how they fund their art. And this is just one example that hopefully can be useful and maybe another way to see it. Like I felt when I heard Elizabeth Gilbert say that she kept working a full time job for most of her career, helped me to be okay with doing that
0: with mine. Gosh, there's just so many ways to be a prolific creative person in the world, and it can change. You can decide that you want to be prolific by having a day job and writing at night, or maybe 10 years later, you decide that that's not for you anymore. And that's okay. It's just like being open to the journey. One door opens the next, as they say in alchemy. Totally. Well, great little case study. George, call us. We'd love to interview you. And our final installment of Killing the Starving Artist comes out this week, next week comes out on a Friday. Um, So we'll see you there. Make sure you join us. If you haven't listened to the other episodes yet, go give them a listen and we'll see you on the internet.
1: Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. The 12th House is produced by me, Katie Dilbao, with theme music by Nathan McKay and edited by the incredible Softer Sound Studio, who you can find more information about in our show notes.